Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Christopher Waite, Director of the Center for Urologic Oncology at Cleveland Clinic's Glickman Urological and Kidney Institute. Dr. Waite was here previously to talk about high-intensity focused ultrasound, or HIFU, for treating localized prostate cancer. That episode is still available for you to listen to. Today, he's here to talk to us about robot-assisted RPLND for treatment of testicular cancer. So, welcome back. Dale, thanks for having me on again. Happy to be back. All right. So remind us a, a little bit. I gave a little little introduction there, but what's your role here at Cleveland Clinic? I am the center director for urologic oncology. That means I help oversee the, the patient care of the portion of urologic oncology that requires surgery or in the early stages, typically. And we have a great team uh, here in Northeast Ohio that uh, many fellowship trained oncologists that that treat the the breadth of urologic cancers, such as kidney, testis, prostate, penile bladder. And um, and then I also am the fellowship director for our urologic oncology fellowship. Excellent. Well, today we're going to talk about um, retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, robot-assisted treatment uh, for testicular cancer. And I guess just uh, we have a lot of different people that might be listening in. Can you can you maybe give us an overview? What what has traditionally been the surgical management of testicular cancer? Well, testicular cancer has really been one of the major success stories in multimodal management of cancer. You know, testicular cancer used to have a 95% death rate, and, and now it's a 95% survival rate. And it's, it's been a real great example. And the initial diagnosis of testicular cancer is almost always surgical. Usually, this is a disease that shows up in younger men, usually in their 20s or 30s. They usually notice an abnormality in their, in their testicle. That is usually removed surgically with an inguinal incision. And, and then uh, the diagnosis is made that subtype of testicular cancer is identified. And then that, along with imaging and some blood work, helps set the foundation for the staging and the grade of that tumor and then that helps us to guide the, the subsequent steps. What we're talking about today is an additional surgical procedure called a retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, which takes years of practice till it rolls off the tongue. But uh, this is a surgery that, that is used for lymph nodes that appear to be involved with testicular cancer. The testicles, when they start in embryological development, actually start up right under the kidneys and they sort of descend into the scrotum throughout uh, embryological development. But the blood supply and the lymphatic drainage still goes up just underneath the kidneys along what we call the great vessels, the vena cava and the aorta. And so if the testicle cancer spreads and, and there's concern that it has gone to those first chain lymph nodes, that's typically where it goes. And so we use this surgery both sometimes if we see early stage, stage one or two, we call that a primary retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, or sometimes if we clearly see that it has spread into the retroperitoneal lymph nodes, the tumor markers are elevated and that patient undergoes chemotherapy and there is a residual cancer in the retroperitoneum, we will do the retroperitoneal lymph node dissection 
after the chemotherapy, and that's called a salvage retroperitoneal lymph node or post-chemo RPOMB. And I guess when we think about this procedure specifically being robot-assisted, what what sort of drove the push to a robot-assisted compared to a more traditional approach? What were the what were the factors with traditional surgeries that led to this being more of a robot-assisted procedure? Well, you know, after after the the huge success was made in survival, you know, as I mentioned, that swing from ninety five percent death rate to ninety five percent cure rate. Now, a lot of the uh, attention and focus has turned on how can we make the treatments less morbid, uh, because these tumors show up in young men. We found a lot of the, the chemotherapy, though it works really well for the cancer, uh, many of these men are left with some long-term complications related to their chemotherapy or their radiation therapy. So in that spirit and in that vein, there was uh, you know, this idea of, you know, can we shift more people to surgery, which has very few long-term complications? And then further beyond that, can we make the surgery a more tolerable surgery? The traditional surgery because the retroperitoneal lymph nodes are posterior or behind all of the intestines, the stomach, et cetera, all of those things have to be moved out of the way, but they're right in front of the spinal column. So you can't come from the back either. And because you're operating around large blood vessels, you have to have a very uh, controlled operative field because uh, you need to be able to quickly resolve any bleeding if you get from these major blood vessels. And so that, that was kind of the impetus. Can we come up with a new way to approach this operation that can have a lot lower morbidity because the traditional approach, as I was mentioning, is a midline incision that usually goes from where the ribs come together to quite a ways below the belly button, right in the midline. So a very large incision, the intestines have to all be moved up and out of the way and most patients would spend, you know, five to seven days in the hospital, even though they're young and healthy and experience quite a bit of pain and, and uh, difficulty in the perioperative period, although in the long term, they did great. And so that was kind of the main driving force. Can, can we push more patients towards surgery and avoid chemotherapy? And can we make that surgery even more tolerable and lower the morbidity so these young men can get back to work and, and school and or whatever is going on in their lives in that moment. So I guess as a medical oncologist, my, my question would be, are there particular technical advances that, as you mentioned, you're trying to get lymph nodes that are behind all of the intestinal organs, and you mentioned close to really important blood vessels, kind of an important part and, and difficult to get to. Are there, were there technological advances that made this a reality? Yeah, there were kind of two advances. There were fits and starts uh, of attempting this with a laparoscopic approach um, where, where you blow air into the space and then use straight instruments to go in and try to perform this operation. But, but it was a very challenging operation and your, your options for control of the blood vessels were really limited. Furthermore, because of the challenge and, and the difficulty in accessing all the different quadrants of the abdomen that you needed to access, it was really, uh, I, I feel like there was a compromising on the operation itself. People would do part of the surgery or they would only do the most concerning part or they would just take out a lymph node and then say, okay, there's a lymph node, you need to do chemotherapy. So the robotic uh, instrument has been around for about 20 years. People also tried that, but it was not adaptable enough and, and did not have enough flexibility um, that really made it possible to, to recreate the open operation. 
So what really made a big difference is the most recent iteration of the robot has much more flexibility and you can uh, dock the robot from the side of the patient and still get into the location that you need. And so it was this, the most current generation of the robot had more uh, flexibility. The ro- robot arms were smaller. And we found that if we sort of tilt the patient on their head and use gravity to pull most of the intestines away, then we can kind of create a hammock of tissue to sew the rest of the intestines up against the abdominal wall and keep them behind and uh, then access this really critical space where these lymph nodes go. With the robotic approach, is this primarily being used for um, a primary uh, surgery or these? is it being more for salvage procedures or really a little of both? A little of both, but certainly more commonly in the primary setting. As you know, Dell, that uh, after chemotherapy or radiation, for that matter, we usually will find a significant amount of tissue change, and we primarily do these in the in the primary setting prior to chemo. We have done them in the post chemo setting. They have to be the right candidate in that scenario because even though we have far more access and space with this new robotic approach, you still have somewhat limited options if you get into major bleeding. And so you have to be carefully selected for choosing the right patient in the post-chemo setting. And I guess from a patient selection standpoint, are there other factors that that play in terms of comorbidities? These tend to be younger people, of course, but other comorbidities are patient factors. Yeah. Obesity makes this operation far more challenging because the weight of the intestines is harder to hold both against the lungs because the patient, again, is inverted in the Trendelenburg position. So the the mesentery and the intestines push up against the diaphragm. And if the patient weighs too much, they cannot ventilate well in that position. And then the second, the, the weight of the mesentery and the intestines make it sometimes so you cannot retract adequately to have the safety margin necessary to operate around these blood vessels. So those are the main comorbidities that make this approach more challenging. How about, and, and again, younger patients, so maybe not as much of a factor, prior surgeries, or do you have to worry about that as well? Yeah, sometimes, although we, we are quite accustomed to operating in reoperative fields, but potentially, you know, bowel, uh, if there was a major bowel resection, we would still probably be able to do it, but it may take a little bit more effort. And occasionally, patients, for example, if there were was a stoma, for example, or some kind of major abdominal surgery, uh, that might make it nearly impossible or unsafe. And we would do it through the traditional open approach. What about access? You know, certainly um, we do a lot of things here at the Cleveland Clinic that may not be necessarily widely uh, available. What, what, what about access to these robotic procedures? The access is very limited to this particular approach at this time. There are very few of us around the country that are doing them. Uh, it, it comes from several reasons. One is certainly that this is a, a, an exceedingly complex operation, as we mentioned, around the major blood vessels. And so you have to be often in the tertiary quaternary uh, medical center to be able to quickly respond to intense bleeding. Um, second, the testicular cancer, fortunately, is fairly rare, although the rates, unfortunately, are on the rise. And therefore, not a lot of people have experience doing this procedure, period, let alone to then transfer a very complex open operation to 
a complex robotic operation. And so the uptake has been slow and it has really been regionalized to only a few centers around the country that are offering this approach. And, and as I did mention earlier, one frustration I've had with some who offer it is they compromise on the operation. So they'll do a template operation when maybe a full template would be mandated if they were going to have it done open. And so I think there has been some hesitancy from the larger oncological community to embrace the approach as well, partially because of the complexity, but partially because some of the advocates have not been rigorous in their oncologic principles and have you know, chosen the reduction in morbidity over perhaps the, the correct cancer approach. And I guess since that's a really important thing when people may be considering sending a patient for a procedure, could you sort of uh, give us a little bit more information on template, full template, what, what you mean by that, just so people can kind of think through that when they're thinking about choices for their patients? Well, what we're referring to this is, of course, there are two testicles, and each testicle has a typical drainage zone where the lymph nodes, when if you have a cancer in the right testicle, for example, it will typically drain primarily to the right side, although it can cross over a little bit onto the left side because the, the right testicular artery actually comes from the aorta, which is on the left side of the body. And so the right template is a little bit more broad, and then the left template is a little bit more narrow because the left artery and vein both are on the left side. And so the lymph drainage is primarily on the left side, although there are some cases of it crossing over to the right side. And so in a primary setting, it's probably in a primary setting with no clear sign of metastatic disease, a templated operation is probably justified from an oncologic standpoint because there's no clear sign that it has metastasized and it is primarily an evaluation of the lymph nodes to see if there's any evidence of, of it having left. However, in a post-chemo setting, usually in that scenario, we know that there have been metastases. We know that chemotherapy has been completed. And the standard in that scenario is usually to do a bilateral template. So regardless of which side the testicle tumor originated, we would recommend removing both the left side lymph nodes and the right side or a full, what we call bilateral retroperitoneal template. Excellent. So I guess a, a question that comes to mind is, We've had other uh, episodes of this podcast where we've talked about lymphedema, you know, when there's been disruption of lymph nodes, what might happen as a consequence. What are the consequences of taking out lymph nodes in this setting? Uh, the good news is there are very, very few long-term complications of these lymph nodes. These lymph nodes are quite central. There's a lot of duplication of lymph drainage. So as opposed to lymph node dissections in the groin or leg or in the armpits where those may be the only lymph nodes or the only lymph vessels draining the, the extremities, there seems to be duplicated lymph drainage. So we don't see any long-term lymphedema of the lower extremities or the upper extremities. What we do see of uh, these particular lymph nodes is they, they drain what are called chylomicrons. And these are uh, molecules that your body processes when you eat a lot of fat. And they drain through these and go back into your bloodstream. And there's a possibility that these can leak out into the retroperitoneal space and, and you can accumulate a significant amount of fluid. Um, and there's about a, a 15, 10 to 15% risk of this happening. And therefore, we encourage our patients to eat a low-fat diet for four weeks after this surgery. And if they do that, the risk of 
what we would call chylus ascites is very low. Uh, almost no patients will get it if they stick to that diet, but it is a little tricky because it is a low fat diet. And many of these young men are at the point in life where they haven't really thought about what they eat. And the average American eats far more than 20 grams of fat in a day. And so that is that is something that we encourage our patients to do. And, and usually they will not experience that problem. And if they do get it, then we're very strict. We control and count every gram of fat that they eat. And, and then that usually resolves it, although they may have to have the fluid drained off before they get to the point where their body can process it and everything heals up adequately. You mentioned that patients with uh, testicular cancer, they have a, a really good survival rate. We're really trying to do what we can to minimize really harm from their, their treatments. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think with this, with this technique, with robotic surgeries, what do you think have been the biggest wins um, you know, you mentioned before about, you know, less pain, mm-hmm. quicker recovery. What, what do you think have been the biggest wins in this case? Yeah, I, I think the, the recovery is, is remarkably faster. So the average patient, I think in the United States, after an open surgery spends about five to six days in the hospital. And then about six weeks before they report feeling back to normal, our average patient with this minimally invasive robotic approach has spent one day in the hospital. And I, I had a patient <laughs> come back two weeks later for his post-operative follow-up. And he had told me he had been playing basketball. And I, I, I said, well, even though you didn't have the minimally invasive approach, I don't want you to be playing basketball two weeks after this kind of surgery, but was also amazed to see that he was feeling well enough to, to go out and play basketball. And so I think the total recovery time is, is, is much quicker. And we've also had a slightly lower rate of chylocytes. Part of this could be selection, again, because those patients have a lower risk of chylocytes. But also, you know, we have a, about five to ten-fold magnification. And so we may be able to see the vessels a little bit more clearly, the lymph vessels, and may be able to control them with clips, et cetera, maybe a little bit better. But that remains to be seen. So good success. What what are the gaps? Are we where we need to be, or do you still see gaps? Do you still still see need some sort of room for improvement? I think uh, there's still some opportunities to to broaden this uh, approach to a wider audience because I think one thing that I find very appealing about it as well is that in what we call stage one B, there's a significant risk of relapse, about fifty percent chance that the tumor is going to come back. And we know we can lower that by uh, RPLND. We didn't often offer it that way and really encourage surveillance because the open RPLND was you know, a significant um, procedure uh, to undergo and often put people out for six weeks. But also many of these young men are in very transient phases of life where they're changing where they're living, they're in college, they're changing jobs frequently, they're on their parents' insurance, then they're off their parents' insurance. And, and we've actually always known that surveillance and follow-up on testis cancer patients has always been a challenge because of some of those logistical details. And, you know, if we have a fairly low morbidity procedure that can help really lower that risk even better um, without too much of a, a cost to the patient, then I think that can also help for men who are in a very transient phase. I think we also need to figure out the details on how to get this surgery done more effectively in the post-chemo setting. 
and safely and, and, and to more obese patients because that remains a, a challenge that those patients may not be eligible and they may stand to benefit the most because obese patients have higher risks of wound complications and those risks are far higher when you have an open incision compared to minimally invasive incisions. Well, you're doing good work and I appreciate all of your insight today. Well, thanks for having us on. It's been a pleasure to talk with you again. To make a direct online referral to our Tosic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.